0: Okay, this morning, I'm just gonna uh, share uh, briefly, and maybe not so brief, uh, from the Word this morning, uh, just some thoughts that I've had uh, for, for a while now, for a few days, maybe a week. Some of these thoughts I had mentioned to Mike and said that I was gonna record them uh, and share them yesterday i said but i don't want to right now until i can i can record them because the the word of god is so precious and it was so precious to me that i said i just want as many as would want to listen to it and want to hear the word and god's comfort and encouragement uh, that that they could and he still managed to pull some out of me and doing so I mentioned some of the things, and he still kept prying them out of me because we have our private time on Wednesdays. I said that I really wanted to record it all, but we had a really sweet time around it too yesterday, and it was a time of encouragement. And I said so, and Mike Mike said to me, he said, this is just, you know, the Word just becomes such a place of rest and comfort for us. And, of course, I, I say the same thing with him every time that God gives the word. So I'm just going to be reading in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. And this is the story of the cave of Adullam. And I just want to give you a little background as I I research this uh, because uh, I I just want to be very precise in in the word. And uh, so in that sense, uh, researching it, this cave that, that David was, uh, that he ran to, and we'll, and he escaped, and we'll see this. It was on the plains of Judah. You see that recorded in Joshua 15 and verse 35. And, uh, and this city, it was a city, Adullam. And this city was a royal Canaanite city near Gath, around in the city of Gath. And that was where David, actually, and 1 Samuel 17, we see... First Samuel 17 in those 50 verses in that chapter there where he slew Goliath, Israel's uh, uh, giant, that, that fear that the enemy was using against Israel through Goliath, that giant. And of course, not, and I don't want to get into the specifics of it, but anyways, recorded that we think some men are tall today in basketball when they're over seven feet tall. Goliath here was anywhere from 9 foot 2 to 9 foot 6 in height. He was a big man, and he ca- it was causing a lot of fear to the armies of, of Israel and causing a lot of fear to Saul. Anyway, so Adullam here, as we said, was, was one of those royal Canaanite cities, just right near Gath, where David, God had raised him up and caused him with just a sling, just a sling. We'll get into those at a different time, but the word of God is so loaded. I mean, he had a sling, five smooth stones, and a little bag, which he had used to defend the sheep behind the scenes, just a few sheep, where he had killed a lion. He had killed a lion that had took, took one of the sheep. He killed a lion and he killed a bear and he killed a giant, God doing all these things. to this little shepherd, this little shepherd boy, David, the youngest of Jesse's, his father's uh, children. And so, prior to here, in in 1 Samuel uh, 22, prior to that in this chapter, he had just been to Gath and he had been to Nob. And that cave, like we said, was just right near where he Uh, flew to was just right near there now there was Rehoboam and Rehoboam was the first king of Judah during the period when the kingdom of Israel was divided but it was fortified and strengthened by Adullam as one of the cities that was set as a protective shield and God used it as a protective shield for Jerusalem. You'll see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verses five through 12. Now the city, and this is all gonna give us a picture here in the isagogics to understand what was going on at this present time. The city was mentioned by Micah the prophet as, as one city which was called the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel, we'll see that in Micah chapter 1, and verse 14. It was called that because at some point that they would see the time of God's restoration. They would see that, the time of restoration of Israel. And though, obviously, what had to happen was the nation would be sent to exile for the punishment and chastisement of their sins. So anyway, this, this Adullam, this ancient city where this cave was located, right in Adullam, was... It was the city of Adullam, and it was the villages that are mentioned after the exile, and you see that in Nehemiah 11 and verse 30. So that's just given us a little snapshot, and you can look those chapters up, and you can get an understanding of what the cave of Adullam meant. Now, Adullam, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced almost the same way as in the English, and it means a fortress. That's what it means, Adullam. It means a fortress and a stronghold. So this is the cave where David had flew to, to escape the wrath of Saul. Now, David here, we, we had mentioned in 1 Samuel, as the word is mentioned to us in 1 Samuel the 17th chapter, he had strangled a lion and a bear. He killed a giant, huge giant. And also in there in these previous chapters, uh, the following chapters, I should say. He overcame 200 Philistines, literally. Think of everything that God had done in him in overcoming the lion, the bear, the giant, and 200 enemies that would come against him. But here, what do do we see, David? After all that God had done in him and had done in him, He himself is overcome by needless fear. Fear. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear. He hasn't given us that. Many times God has had us to mention and and to understand that, that fear is a spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's other spirits that come against God's spirit from bringing into us the reality of who Christ is in us and who we are in him. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Christ is that power in 1 Peter 1 and verse 5. Christ is the power, and we're kept by it, by that power. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, it says, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And God had done all these things in David, but yet he runs now after all of that in needless fear. And what was fear doing to David? What does the enemy use fear to do to us? Causes us to be tormented. We see in in, in 1 John 4, and verse 18, fear casts, uh, love, who God is, casts out fear because fear has torment. Torment is the Greek word, is the Greek word kalesis and it means torture and punishment. Know how the enemy likes to torture us and punish us with thoughts from spirits that have nothing to do with who Christ is in us and who we are in him. Nothing to do with God at all. That's what makes it so necessary in the midst of our spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are our carnal. Do you remember in 1 Samuel the 17th chapter, Saul offered all his armor for David and David tried it, put it on, but he said, I haven't tested this it's not a provision. It's not a resource from God because what God gave me to, to uh, slew the lion and to protect the sheep and kill a giant was just a stone. Of course, the stone represents Christ himself, that tried cornerstone. That's Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah 28, and verse 16. And that stone is that massive foundation for us in type that Christ is. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, and all the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ who is our rock, our stone. He is our rock. And that rock we know in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 was Christ. That rock that was brought out that, that uh, Moses could hide in in Exodus 33 and verse 21. And that rock was cleft on Calvary. And because of that, we can hide in him. And so we see that David is terrified. He's tortured by fear. He not only ran, and there's two reasons why we run and and operate in fear. It wasn't just because of the wrath of Saul. And in that sense, David was innocent. He never did anything. He never rose up against Saul, the government of Israel that Saul represented. He never operated in treason or as an enemy against Saul or Israel. Matter of fact, he protected them. And so Saul here would represent Satan and all that he comes against us because we know that in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all that love God will suffer persecution. They're gonna, you, we're going to suffer persecution, as Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 12. And he also said in John 15, 18, if, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they kept my sayings, they're going to keep yours. They hated me without a cause. David wrote that in Psalm 69, and verse 4. He said, my enemies that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. But you know, in Romans 8, verse 31, God for us, does it even matter who's against us? In 8, 31 to 39, No, he will never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13 and verse five with a triple salutations, never gonna leave us nor forsake us. But David was terrified because of the hatred of Saul operating under the evil of Satan. But also the other thing that caused him great terror where God was going to deal with him in this cave was his own sins. And they can cause a lot of pain and a lot of fear And the enemy wants to bring them up constantly before us. And that's what makes it so necessary for us to instantly confess them in 1 John 1, 9. To instantly confess them so that the enemy doesn't use them as a handle to torture us. And so David here is fleeing, again, for those two reasons. His own sins, and you you see them recorded, his own sins, and cause them great fear. In areas where we don't deal with them and confess them, the enemy can use them against us. That's why God has given us this incredible reality of confessing. What Christ has done with Romans seven, seventeen and Romans seven twenty. It is no longer I that do it, but sins that 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 are in me. That I functioned in them in the flesh in Romans eight, nine, but I can confess them and no longer come under the bondage of the flesh. So David, for that reason, for his sins and the fury of Satan through Saul against him had caused him to run. And we see also here in this portion previously that if, had, if David had been truthful to the priest at Nob and he, what he did there was he felt like he had to go by his own resources because he wasn't trusting God when he was running for both cases, his own personal sins and the fury of, of the enemy coming against him. And those caused him to flee. You wouldn't believe what Christians do today as a result of that. Fact is, we see, and you can see this in Psalm uh, 139. Specifically, you can see 7 through 12. But that whole psalm is 24 verses in Psalm 139. You cannot outrun God. You cannot ru- outrun him. He, how could he? Christ is in us. We cannot outrun him. And he will separate from us all that fear because he won't be, in that sense, he's resting, but in that sense, he's not going to rest until all fear is out of us. And then we can have intimacy and an undisturbed, undistracted communion and fellowship with him in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, and then be able, in verse 4, to share it with others, and that's fellowship. There can't be any true fellowship when these two things are affecting us. The fear... and, and the result of our own sins, many of them unconfessed. And then even when they are, the enemy will accuse in Revelation 12 and verse 10. But the fact of the matter is, the accusation comes against the confession that was made in Christ because it's an accusation against Christ. Will those stand? And of course they won't. And so here, he feigned to be like he was out of his mind for fear. See, fear caused him to do that. Fear caused him to try and operate within himself. You know, when we operate within ourselves with our own natural resources, could he use the natural resources of Saul when he met Goliath? He could not. What God could do with one stone, all the army of Israel and all of Saul's armor could do nothing. Could do nothing. When we trust in Christ, and that's the picture. The picture there. There were five smooth stones in his bag. That's his capacity. It's loaded with grace. Five, the number of grace. He had a sling. The sling is is absolute dependence. And you take that stone that Christ is the grace and truth, and he slung it and hit it, hit Goliath right in his forehead. You should check it out and study it sometime. The weight of all his armor, saw uh, uh, Goliath, all his armor, it was nothing to one, one little stone, one truth from the word of God that the stone of Christ is, can slew our giants, our fears. And that stone, that's Christ, dealt with all of our sins. Thank God. And, and he crucified the old in Romans six, one through six. He did all of that. But you see, that's what he did at Nob, with the priest at Nob, he, you know, when he was there, and so he had to act like he was, not, like he was my, a madman to the king of Gath. And as a result, he had, he had to hide like a traitor in the cave of Adullam. One sin, one misstep that's unconfessed leads to another. And then we make excuses for them and we blame people. Jesus did away with all cloaks, all excuses in John 15 and verse 22. And those excuses that at times that we may hold on to, those are just the areas of the flesh still in bondage. And in that area, there's hatred for Christ. And Romans 8 and verse 7, even though he never leaves us nor forsakes us. One misstep, one step of disobedience, known disobedience too in James 4 and verse 17 to him, And that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. One misstep leads to another. You know, it's what what happens with us is that the troubles of life frequently spring from our own disobedience and our own foolishness in Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. They do. But you know, God will use those troubles those failures, that the enemy means for our evil, God means for good, in Genesis 50 and verse 20. And that's why Job could say, in 23 and verse 16, the Almighty troubles me. He was bring, using those troubles to bring Job to the end of himself. Stop relying on others. Stop trying to rely on his own natural resources and the resources of others. God had to bring him to that place of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness. And so David escapes to the cave of Adullam. Now, and and he thought maybe that he could outrun. Really, what was he doing? Just like just like Jacob was doing. Thought he he his fears against Esau, as we see in Genesis and those in those chapters there. When God could deal with with all of Jacob's fears, then he could face Esau. But until then, he was horrified and scared of him. Well. David escapes, and still that place was an escape, but it was a place where God could deal with David. In in what? In a perfect, complete place of safety. God's still using it for a place of safety. And that's when God does, he gets us alone. We all have a cave, and he gets us alone when we're quiet before him and it's a place of safety. But then it becomes a place of comparative seclusion. That's why God has taught us faithfully that it's good. There's two reasons where it's good to be alone with God, two reasons, one, where God in our little cave of seclusion in a place of safety when we're all alone and no one else is around, we don't have to put on a show. We don't have to put on a show of the flesh We don't have to make ourselves to appear like something which really is not what we're like on the inside. And we get alone with God in our cave and God begins to deal with us when we're alone. We can fool others, but when we're alone with God, we can fool others, meaning cover up. We may blame others for other things like Adam and Eve did in Genesis, the third chapter. In those first 14 verses. But you can't fool God. Our secret sins, our secrets are in the light of his countenance in Psalm 90 verse 8. That's when he gets us alone. It was a cave, a place of comparative seclusion. Because at that point, even though David, the fear of his enemy, Saul, he was innocent. He didn't do anything. But his own sins, they began to to wear him out. And he was exhausted. And that's when God would come in. Because he was exhausted, not only in his physical body, but in his mind. God was using all of those things, all of them. Because he was exhausted. And then in his exhaustion, in his place of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness, it became a place of earnest supplication. He opened up his heart to God and was crying out. You see that in Psalm, the fifth chapter. You know, the Psalms are loaded with the tears of multitudes of their repentance. It's a different one than it was in Exodus 2 and verse 23 when they were in bondage and their cries went up to God. They weren't crying in repentance. They were crying as just the result of what their sins did to them without repentance. But here, the Psalms are loaded with that, where God brought them to that place. Well, David, we see, and we have seen in those chapters, David sinned at Nob. That's where he sinned. But God brought him to a cave. And what was that cave? It was, What was it? It was the place where, where David could deal with his sins, and he repented, and he confessed them. And in that cave, where God gets us alone, we all have our caves, and we'll see what those caves can represent, David sought for forgiveness for his sins. We see that in Psalm 51, in verses four and five. But Psalm 51, verses four and five, was long written before Psalm 32. 1 and 2. Where when one confesses them, they're forgiven and cleansed of them. That's Psalm 32, 1 and 2. But he had to confess them first in Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5. That's what the cave became to him, a place for him to to get, deal with God and where he would seek for forgiveness for his sins. Things that were loaded up in him. Think of the things that we forgot, the sins that we forgot. And God in his mercy and in his grace, when we get alone with him, he, he will deal with them. They will cause tears. But in Second uh, Corinthians 7 and verse 10, godly sorrow was always without regret. Those are the tears of the Psalms. There's never any regret with godly sorrow. It's because love has entered in forgiveness has entered in through grace and truth the grace and truth that Christ is his person and what he's accomplished has entered in into our hearts and that's what that place and then that place became a place once he would deal with his sins before God as where David sought protection from all his enemies David sought also in that cave deliverance from his prison You know, when I looked at that prison and God reminded me and I wrote it down, I wrote it down right here. What is that prison? You know, a lot of believers, a lot of us, and I have been one of them, have been in a cave loaded with fear because of guilt and condemnation of past sins. And we've said before, and I I know this experientially, that guilt is an unbearable burden and only one could bear it. In Psalm 55 and verse 22, in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, Jesus Christ was that great sin bearer. He bore all of our sins. We cannot bear them. And the enemy likes to bring them up into our experience and to accuse us in Revelations 12 and verse 10. But that was the place, the cave of Adullam, where he sought deliverance from his prison, the prison of guilt. There was so much that David had become guilty of, even in the future. In the future, even with his son, see Absalom. His son murdered one of uh, the relatives of of David because uh, he had raped that woman, and and Absalom sought revenge against him, and uh, killed him. And David refused. Absalom from coming to the palace for two whole years he wouldn't forgive him and kept him out of the palace and that caused tremendous rebellion in Absalom you see his sins my sins our sins don't just affect of course they don't just affect my communion and fellowship and my rest with God you see that it does away with my peace in Isaiah 57 19 to 21 Peace to them that are near and peace to them that are far off. And it affects, my sin doesn't just affect me. Until it's dealt with, it affects everybody else that I come in contact with. And yet we've been forgiven them, but we need to confess them. We need to absolutely confess them, homologēo in the Greek, to cite them, to name them. And so God can bring in a godly sorrow without regret where there's no worldly regret. Worldly regret is where the enemy comes in and causes great guilt and condemnation against us. But we don't have that positionally in Christ in Romans 8 and verse 1. And that's positional. Romans 8 verse 1 is positional reality. How God truly sees us. But when I function in the flesh, that's the enemy. That, my flesh becomes the enemy with which he can torture me and then affect others. We see that in Romans chapter Eight and verses four through eight, but so David sought deliverance from the prison of his guilt and condemnation. You know, there's a cave of Adullam in every one of our lives. There is doubt can be a cave. Doubt. You know, Romans fourteen twenty two says, "Happy is the man that condemns not himself and the thing that he allows." That's only a man in Christ, by the way. There's sorrow, but never with 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 regret guilt, and condemnation properly. Doubt can be that. Because he that doubts, in Romans 14, 23, is damned if he eat. And God's not damning him it's the enemy. And he that doubts is damned if he eat. To doubt God for a single thing. He that doubts is damned if he eat because he doesn't eat. He doesn't feast. Because whatsoever is not of faith, absolute dependence upon God is sin, you see. And that affects everyone. Even if it's not Verbal, it can be nonverbal, but have a tremendous effect. Dave can a doubt can be such a, a, a cave. Persecution can be a cave. David was running. He was persecuted for Saul from, from Saul by the enemy through him for no reason. And also we said for his own sins. But here was persecution can be a cave. And I think we've all in measure have felt that. Doubt. Guilt. Condemnation, persecution. Sickness can be such a cave. Let's think about that. Sickness can be such a cave. Sometimes we so forget that we're the dot. And the moment we receive Christ, God circled himself around us. That's a full orb, circle. Nothing can penetrate that. And God will use it. Sickness may be such a, a cave. He did that in Job's life. He used it to deal with him. Then bereavement, tears, tears for ourselves, our failures and sins, for tears for others can be that, can be such a cave. But you know, this is the beautiful reality that God was bringing out to me and he wants to bring out to us this morning is that there's no cave deep and dark enough to shut out God. He'll never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13 and verse five, a triple salutation. He's never going to leave us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, never do so. Then we see in the cave there, we see three things about David's followers because here's David on a run for his life. Then all his family, the 400, there were 400 and they, a lot of them were his family members and friends and associates of, associates of his family members who were living in fear of Saul and his government the way that he governed apart from God using his own resources that caused great fear in those 400 and they found out where David was and they came there in that cave you know a lot of these caves and David we uh, shared this had uh, shared this with Mike on on Wednesday having God having given me this I don't know this this uh, teaching to study some three decades or more ago, that some of these caves, for him to get into such a large room for 400 other individuals to fit, sometimes he had to squeeze himself through tunnels and and, and I'm sure it caused a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort to get to that place, to that cave where he could rest from his enemies, from doubt, from fear and guilt. And deal with his sins. But God used that. And he uses the situations and circumstances of our life. To squeeze us. And there's pain involved. But it's not wasted pain. No pain in our life that God allows is ever wasted. We must remember that we're the dot. And God's the circle. There is no wasted pain from God. It's to bring out a godly sorrow. So that we can experience the tears and cleansing of a sorrow where there is no regret, no worldly regret, again, which is the result of guilt and condemnation and accusation, of which for us there's none in our position, but God uses the circumstances and situations to squeeze us, to get us to a place where now Christ is our experience in place of doubt, in place of fear, in place of all of our enemies. And so his followers come, you know, when we get, God gets us and squeezes us in the privacy of our own circumstances and situations. And then he gets us into a large room, a large cave. And that large cave is fit enough for 400 people. And God sends in these people that had an affection. They loved David. He did, he had, God had used them, David to deliver them. God used David to invest in them in the midst of their troubles, in the midst of the things that they went through. And they had an affectionate association with David. And in a time of trouble, what God will do is he'll raise up friends to comfort those that absolutely depend upon him, his believing, non-doubtful children. It was a mixed association. It was also a faithful association. Now, I want us to see, God wants us to see here that in this particular place here, that those 400 men, a lot of them, a lot of them were murderers, they were plunderers. In other words, they operated in their own resources. They operated in sin, and a lot of them, a lot of their character was very bad, just like our character in the flesh, which was very bad, very, very bad. And they came to David. They came to David. And David was used by God, as God used him to change David's character. God could use David to change these men's characters. And what did they become? They became, like we now become, soldiers of the cross. You see this in 2 Timothy chapter one, one through three. And then we, we can teach others through what God has done in us. we become soldiers of the cross, the cross that constantly gives us the availability and the grace and truth that came as a result of it, of the life that rose from the, from the grave, that resurrection life, to constantly cut off the flesh and deal with us so that God could continually use us and be blessed us and have intimacy with us and then use us as his, his uh, resource for others. Well, we see that God was able to change the experiential character of David. He changed it just like he's changed ours and then he can use us to change the character of others and they can become these mighty, mighty men of God. They became David's mighty men where maybe they wouldn't have thought of anyone but themselves, and that's, like, that's what we are in the flesh. We don't think of God when we forget God. We don't think, care about anyone else. Everything is about ourselves, our circumstances, our situations, everything we're going through. Thank God for humility, and this is what those squeezing places for David were and for us. Squeezes out anything of us making too highly of ourselves or making too lowly of ourselves. You know, both are pride, both are pride. Making us too lowly of ourselves, making us too highly of ourselves is pride. And humility is not thinking of ourselves at all. It's just now we're free, we're lost in his presence. And then we have that joy and that peace that we can only have in his presence. We see that in Psalm 1611 and in the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. These men became now his mighty men because he, he, God invested in David, then David invested in them. They became his mighty men. David, we see, in doing that, we see his mighty men in 2 Samuel 23 verse 14 and 15 through 17, we see that they risked their lives. David wanted to drink a a water from a well in Jerusalem and they broke through the Philistines to get him that cup of water. And it was such a thing that he said, I can't even drink it. He poured it out as a drink offering to God. That's what those men became. And in their character, there was a change in their character and their experiential behavior where they would do that for David. You know, we see this, that David was concealed in a cave, and that's what God does most in us, when he gets us alone, to show us what we're like without Christ, and then instantly to show us what we're like in Christ, and to make that separation in Hebrews 4.12. So it makes it necessary for us to come and hear the word of God, and to do it as much as possible because it is the word of God, that's what it is. That Hebrews 4.12 is the reality of of 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. The word that was preached was not the word of men, but it was the word of God, as it is the word in truth, as it works effectually in those that depend upon that word. And so here, David was concealed in a cave, and a lot like Christ. Christ was laid in a manger where animals, would feed. While the multitude was celebrating all the feasts and the Passover and the feasts that that Christ and that baby, Jesus Christ, would come to fulfill. And there was no room for him. You know, there's no room for Christ in natural resources. But in Christ, there's no room for natural resources. God will not use them at all. He will not use any of our natural resources, our natural thinking. We need to cast them down. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, these natural imaginations. And what's an imagination? To think that I need to do something, that I need to do something to take care of my circumstances and situations, that I need to make a plan that has nothing to do with God Almighty, that was never bathed in prayer. Think of the thoughts and plans we make when they were never bathed with a word of prayer at all. They never entered into the depth of prayer. And so here, we see that that, uh, David was concealed in this cave. Christ was laid in a manger. But David became sustained, and we can do that for others. Even when we're in distress, listen, they came to him. They were in distress, troubled tortured with fear they were in debt they owed creditors they owed creditors and as a result they became discontented because they started looking within many times we've said if you want to be disappointed you look to others to try and and if you can't and to make them to be a resource for you other than christ and then when they fail you, and ultimately they will because love never fails. Christ never does, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. He never fades from the beauty that it is. We may forget his beauty, but it never fades and it's waiting to be gracious in Isaiah 30 and verse 18. Then we get, when, when others can't become a natural resource for us, a way of escape, then we look inwardly and then we get discouraged. But if we want to be encouraged, We had to look for Christ. We had to look to him. Well, David was rejected as king. Who was more rejected than Christ in Isaiah 53, 3 and 4? He was despised and rejected of men in Isaiah 53, in verse 3. He was hated without a cause in Psalm 69, in verse 4. And 34 and verse 19 of Psalms, he was hated without a cause. They rewarded him good for evil. In Psalm 109, 4 through 8, he was rejected. He was rejected in Jeremiah 8, 9. The stone that Christ was was rejected in Matthew 21 and verse 42 and Mark 12 and verse 10. We see in Luke 17 and verse 25 and 20 and verse 17. The stone given by God was rejected. But, But David was sustained by men distressed. Why? Because Christ selected for his disciples, didn't he? His disciples, who were they? They were poor and unknown men. Who were they? They were outcat, They were just fishermen. They weren't in high society. They weren't that. You know who God chose in Acts 4 and verse 13? Ignorant and unlearning men. Unlearned men. They weren't functioning in the world high society and looking for high esteem in the world and to be recognized. They weren't that. They were just simple men. Those were his men. David was made a captain, a captain over four hundred. And you know what? And I love this in Hebrews two ten. Christ is the captain and deliverer, savior of us. And he's all. Christ is the captain and savior, deliverer of all who are in distress. We have a place to bring them to. That's Hebrews four fourteen to sixteen. And if any man, and boy, boy, this is true of me and my growth. In my 71 years, if any man is weary of Satan's service, being used by Satan, being abused by him, then you and I, when we're weary, and then God has to bring us to that place, that we may become a soldier of the cross. Again, you see that in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, and then we teach others in verse 4. We don't get messed up with the details of life. They don't take precedence over the word of God. Private plans don't take precedence over the place where God has called us. They just don't. And we follow through with what God has told us to do and told us how to do it. And we don't neglect or put it off. Well, we see that. So we begin to close this, and we'll get into this a little more because there's so much here. We see here, that that God had brought David to the place of thoughtfulness in that cave. He He was thinking with God. And as a result, David became deeply concerned for the safety of his loved ones, very safely. And so he had a dangerous journey. David had to go to a dangerous journey to bring his parents to a place of comfort. That's what our prayers can do. We need to go on a journey with God. A lot of times it's it's knocking and praying without ceasing. And and we see that in, in uh, Luke 11, verse 11, and Matthew 7, verse 7. We're to keep on knocking and not stop. We're to keep on praying. We need to keep praying. Dan- Daniel prayed 21 days until God could come through that spiritual warfare in Daniel 10 and verse one, 1 through 13 so that, we can have, so that God can bring those to a place of safety and comfort. And that's what he was teaching him in the cave. He had to go on a journey to promote the comfort of his parents. And so David had to go to Moab. Now Moab was a fierce enemy of Saul. And so, because he couldn't trust Saul He had to go to Moab and we know that through the line, the red line of of redemption, that's what Ruth, that's where all his relatives in the royal line was Ruth and she was a Moabitess. You can see that when you read the book of Ruth. Sometime we'll get into that. It's an amazing book in the types that bring out the reality of Christ for us as individuals because that's what every scripture is bringing out. It's bringing out the glory of the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he and he alone has accomplished. So he had to go there. And it wasn't long that he he could obtain the the protection for his parents. He had such respect for them. And so he brought them before the king in Moab. And, And so they dwelt with him there. And then he was received very graciously. God will raise those up who'll raise up others to, to uh, graciously receive us and our loved ones through prayer. God's going to do that. And so it was a long journey. And many times God has, has us on a long journey in our prayer life for ourselves and for others, but it's not without result. It's not without result for protection of himself and for his family members. And so we see this very, very beautifully He had such a devotion to his loved ones, to his parents. Maybe at times we can't fellowship with our loved ones. Maybe we can't, our our natural family. And they may even be born again. And we may not be able to fellowship, but we can always pray for them, for their comfort, for their protection. And uh, that's what David was doing here. He was willing to do it. He was willing to sacrifice his own life, and his own freedom for their safety. And that's what Christ did. See, David was a type of the work of Christ in him. He was that type, and he was so willing. And the last thing that we need to learn is patience. Patience is the constant lesson to teach us constant trust and dependence upon God. To not walk by sight, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, but to walk by complete dependence. To not look at the things that are seen, in our circumstances and situations, and seeing people this way. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18, for the things that are seen are temporal. They are temporal. But the things that are not seen are eternal. They bring in the eternal realities. So it is, is men of God, grace men, men that have been graced out by the goodness that's in Christ alone. In Matthew 19 and verse 17, in Luke 18 and verse 17 through 19 the goodness that's in Christ alone through his grace, those men, those of us, receive God's timely direction from God. We're not to go lag behind and we're not to race ahead in our own plans, but we're to be led by complete dependence upon God. It's not to be an emotional impulse of the flesh to do something that gives us a thrill, to go somewhere because it's that. We need to be led by God for his purpose and his purpose alone, which never fail, which has nothing to do with natural resources or natural thrills, or excitement, nothing to do with that at all. But we need to receive that timely direction from God. And that's what God was teaching us as he taught Daniel to wait those three weeks and to trust him because when it comes, it won't wait. You see that in Habakkuk 2 in verse four, we're to get on our watchtower. And pray and wait for him. And he patiently waits with us while we patiently wait with him. And we look on the watchtower. And we're to write the vision. And the vision's not just yet through the word that he's given us. But it will come. It will come in God's due time. In Genesis 18 and verse 14. Nothing is too hard for God. Everything is too hard for us. Because natural resources will fail. Nothing is too hard for him. But it comes at a set time. A set time, and Sarah will have a son. We will experience new life when we trust him. We need to have that timely direction. And so then it's a time to leave the cave, but not led to leave that cave until we're led by God, till we're filled up with him. Abide not in the hold, they said. Abide not in that place. Yes, it's a fortress and a stronghold, but you go out filled in that stronghold, you are to go out. And God will never disappoint those who wait for his guidance. That is brought out in Psalm 27 and verse 14. Be patient, wait upon him. Be patient and wait upon him in Psalm 34. 31 and verse 24, be patient. Fret not evil, be patient. Trust in him, rest in him in Psalm 37 and verse seven and nine. Cast not away your confidence in Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. For it will, you will be recompensed when you depend upon God for his timing of things and not our own plans. And we see this in James 1, 1 through 6. Wait for God. Wait for wisdom. Wait for him to give you wisdom. Be, be content resting in his love and wait for his wisdom that he will bring to you. And so it's good. It's good to wait for his guidance. And then his guidance, those become steps that are ordained by the Lord in Psalm thirty-seven and verse twenty three and verse twenty-four. We're to wait on him. Because he's never his seed is never begged for bread. We never have to we've never begged for it in Psalm thirty seven and verse twenty four. psalmist said, I've never seen his seed, those that are his begging for bread. Like a beggar praying in doubt and fear. Never. And then we receive exclusive, precise, minute direction from God when he said to him, now you're to get into the land of Judah. Now I'm going to send you. All the needs and exigencies of life, listen, those that are seen by us and those that are unseen, those that are known Things that we know and the things that we don't know are regulated by God. He knows all things. 1 John 3.20 If your heart condemns me, listen, your mind through these wrong thoughts, these wrong plans. All the plans of natural resources that fail and fall to the ground. His love never does. Not one promise in 1 Kings eight fifty six in Ezekiel 12, in verse 25, in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. Not one thing that he speaks falls to the ground, but will accomplish the thing that he sent it to. In us as his vessels, he will accomplish it. And they're known of God. And when your mind condemns you, God is greater than your heart, your mind. And he knows all things. And when you know him in his love, resting in the comfort of his love and giving you wisdom. And wisdom is, is a knowing when, where, and how to apply the word of God. And when you do, now you have confidence with God and you can go forward like David with just a sling, five smooth stone, and you will slew, you will s- slew and you will kill those giants of fear in your life. Every one of them will fall. Every single one of them, because they're known by God. And so it, it behooves us and it's very important for us to instantly and promptly obey the direction of God. That's when it says David departed. Wherever God calls us to serve or suffer, we must cheerfully obey. We're to hear that as we close this morning. We're not only called to serve him, but to suffer for him. We're not to doubt it, We're not to understand it. Why do we think it in 1 Peter 4, 12, that these fiery trials that come to try our dependence are some strange thing? We're not to think that way. We're to suffer with him. All that live godly in Christ Jesus in 2 Timothy 3, 12 will suffer persecution. They hated him, they're gonna hate us in John 15, 18. What makes us think that's so strange? It's a badge of honor. It's a promotion. We're not to be terrified by our enemies in Philippians 1 and 28. We're not only called to serve him and receive the truth of the word, but to suffer in his place in Philippians 1 and 29. And why? Because Romans 8, 18, I reckon, I compute all up, I add it all up in my mind that the sufferings of this present time, all of them, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in and on us. Because we're filling up. Had Christ still had been here, we're, we're filling up, because we have his life of beauty, but of persecution. We're filling them up, like Paul did in Colossians 1 and verse 24. And what is filled up in us is not only it's for Christ, it's not only for ourselves, but it's for multitudes of others. And that's a privilege to be able to suffer for them. And he teaches uh, teaches us these things. We're to cheerfully obey. God loves a cheerful giver. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. He loves a cheerful giver in every single way. God has so blessed us, we can cheerfully give him our all and not hold back anything so that we can use it for our natural resources and not for him. We are to cheerfully obey And he's teaching us through his love and wisdom that we should not dare to resist his leadings through his word, through his incredible love for us, his deep love. And Father, we love you and thank you for this portion this morning. Thank you for your so great love. Manifest it through Christ who is your power. And you've not given us the spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7, but of power, and of love and a very well-disciplined mind. If we lack wisdom in James 5, we can ask, we can go any to our great high priest to find mercy. We come to the throne of grace to find mercy and to get that wisdom and that provision right in the nick of time before we fail. And even when we do, we can come. But oh, how we need to learn not to resist what we know to be true but to receive it and obey his love, his wisdom, his direction instantly. In Jesus' name, amen.